Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Rees. This episode explores newcomers, but not exactly how you'd imagine. Jill talks about the use of stainless steel in winemaking, and Emily talks about the trombone. Winemakers have used stainless steel for more than a century, and the trombone didn't manage to work its way into symphonic music until centuries after it first showed up on the scene. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Hi, Jill Mott. Hello, I'm Lee Reese. <laughs> uh, happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to another edition of Scores and Pours. Scores and Pours. Where we are going to talk about the trombone. Weird. Which is so exciting. I didn't know I liked the trombone as much as I did <laughs> as I was listening to it, especially in these pieces. Okay. And we're going to we're going to talk about the possibly like the influence that it's had or um, you know, it, it's definitely a newcomer, right? Fair like somewhat of a newcomer yeah. when we think of musical instruments for classical music? Yes. Okay. Which is ironic cuz it was always there. But yeah. Ooh, I can't wait to hear you elaborate on that. Yeah. And we're going to talk about a relative newcomer to the world of wine vessels. We're going to talk about stainless steel because even though it's parts of stainless steel and its various forms have been around for centuries, um, actual stainless steel, especially for winemaking, et cetera, has been around for less than 100 years. And mm -hmm its use has revolutionized um, wine in a way that it's changed wine forever. Uh, unlike. Yeah. So uh, that'll be really fun to talk about and to taste a really fun, cute example. I love it. Should we open it up? Uh, sure. Let's, let's do open it. it up. What'd you bring us today? I brought a wine from a great, great man in the wine business, a really fun um, and cool importer. His name is Weston. Um, people call him the Piedmont guy because he knows so much about Piedmont, Italy, um, and has been sourcing wines there for some years now. And this is just a really fun way to demonstrate stainless steel, which we'll talk about, but it's a co-op that they all come together and they, um, Weston goes and tastes various lots and decides, I, I really like this lot, I really like that lot. And so this is something that he made the label for it, and it's a combination of grapes from the area, so Barbera, etc. Um, Ercole, the Piemonte Rosato. So, screw top. That's fun. Yep. Screw cap will um, is used for wines that um, are usually meant to really, you know, most people don't age wines with them because there's no air transfer. It also um, and sometimes... So there is air transfer with a cork? Yep, okay. very finite, uh, which helps your wine age, but um, or can help your wine age. And uh, it also eliminates the problem of having like a corked or a faulty wine. Um, so there are many reasons why the screw cap isn't as pretty, but very yeah. functional. Yeah. So, right. um, so to scores and pours. To scores and pours. Interesting. Can't wait to talk more about this. Right? Who? I just had 17 drinks of that smoothie also, which might inform <laughs> the flavor of that wine. So I think I'm going to hold off on 
the smoothie or the wine well, for I'm, now. Yeah, I'm going to hold off on any making any judgments about Good. said wine. Great call. Mm-hmm. Mm, knuckles. Love that. Okay. So who, when, when you decided, let's talk about the trombone, and then we maybe were going to go on to the sax, and, and I was like, no, let's stick with the trombone. It's so great. <laughs> yeah. Why, um, why did you choose the trombone as opposed to, you know, a, another instrument? Well, because you told me to. <laughs> I mean, because the saxophone in reality is much more of a clear-cut newcomer because it wasn't even invented till the 1840s or 1830s. And so you can definitely pinpoint and be like, oh, here's the invention of the saxophone and here's how it slowly trickled into classical music uh, and still slowly. You know, it's still not a... Uh, every time instrument in an orchestra by any means. But trombone, what happened with trombone, it was weird. Um, That was an instrument that was around in the Renaissance era, often known as a sack butt or a trombone, depending on where you lived. Mm -hmm. Italian, trombone, tiny trumpet. Trombone. Trombone. Small, I think, small trumpet or little trumpet, something like that. Adorable. And But it was just, it never made its way out of the church until the classical era, which is fascinating to me because it was there. And the classical era, what? what? Oh, oh, my bad. Um, Classical era would start in 1750 and go till about early 1800s. Okay, cool. Brief moment in time. We elected, well, you elected four great tunes, as you like to to refer to them as. And how did you decide on those? Because, I mean... On one of them, I'm. It's very obvious why. Which one? Uh, the bolero. Oh, because like, yeah. when they're all coming in and they're doing. But so, mm-hmm, but the mm-hmm. other three, okay, are maybe not so obvious. So, yep. So chronologically speaking, I chose a piece from the Renaissance era by a Venetian composer named Giovanni Gabrielli, who wrote just gobs and gobs and gobs of brass music. His his family did too. He had family members who were composers as well, um, and he wrote a lot of brass music for the express purpose of playing it at St. Mark's Cathedral in the square in Venice, which is awesome. Um, And, uh, you know, sackbutt, trombone, whichever you'd like to know, call it, looks exactly like a freaking trombone. Mm -hmm. Almost. It just looks a tiny bit different. The bell looks a little smaller. It looks a little thinner and maybe cheaper looking in a way. Um, You know, just not as refined or... Uh, whatnot, and so those were just all over the place. There were trombones all over, and, and so you did you choose that piece because it's so like out. It's it was not only in the trombones beginnings, but yeah. it's also like it was he was it was very prevalent in his yeah, music. Super prevalent. Can just, we listen to that? Yeah, let's do it. And I chose this one in particular. A lot of Gabrielli's music sounds similar. Uh, you know, it was written for a super specific purpose, so. But I liked this one because it pretty much starts with the low brass. Uh, so, yeah, so this is um, Son 20.
was he into using the trombone like, you know, we'll listen to a couple others where you can, pieces where you can definitely tell that slide? Oh, yeah, never. Can you? Never. Can you? Can never. You, okay. Yeah, you're never going to hear that in Gabrielli. Wow, so he's more yeah. into it for, it's just, just it's as a chromatic instrument. And, okay. Yep. And in Gabrielli's music, you hear all kinds of call and response, like echo back and forth, because there'd be ensembles on different sides of the cathedral playing black back and forth together mm-hmm. in this antiphonal way. And so during this time, yeah, they, the trombone, as we know it in this form, kind of fell out of favor a little bit before it peaked not again. Really? Or not? No, okay. it just kind of stayed in the church. Okay. We were well into the classical era, well into the classical era before it pops up into an incredibly famous piece by Mozart, which, to be fair, also a religious piece. But uh, and isn't it about isn't it about being like judged like the the what? dead uh, that song? Um, oh, the rec- a requiem. Well, this and uh, specifically yes, and specifically like this movement when you translate it into ink from what is it, Latin to English, that it's Mm -hmm. like the calling of the dead to rise up and be judged by Christ or something. And what I'm wondering is, so in this piece, what I found super interesting... The Gabrielli or the Mozart? uh, The Mozart, thanks. Okay, yep, so we're switching to the Mozart. Let's switch to the Mozart because I think out of all of the pieces, this one historically is the most interesting for me just because I... um, How how it's played and how we just don't know specifically how it should be played, right? Because Mozart passed away partially through scoring it. Yes. And I've heard there was a really interesting site that talks about it being usually scored too slow. Yeah. What we're normally performed too slow. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And so do you, do you, I guess we should listen to it first, but do you, I'm going to ask you if you agree with that. Yeah, no, I thought that article was really fascinating. Uh, Some fella, and we'll post links to this article, um, the two articles, in fact. Uh, And I I don't, it it blows my mind because on the score, Mozart writes the time signature a certain way, but somehow over the years of copying, it's gotten changed and that altered how the performance worked. came out and so then now people are paying attention to what the original scoring was again and so the recording i chose is more historically informed in that way and and goes by pretty briskly okay but when i became aware of this piece as a whole mozart's requiem um <clears throat> and she said that uh he died in the middle of this which is true so mozart died in 1791 the piece was technically finished in 1792 but there was all this his wife, man, <laughs> she tried to pull a fast one on the one who commissioned it. I mean, it's just a, really a nightmare, the the end construction of this piece. But um, <clears throat> but when I first came aware of it, it, you know, those performances are a lot slower. That was kind of a little bit of a mess, me talking there, but I think you get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what? why did you pick this specific well, Mozart tune for the... So this particular movement in the Requiem, because the Requiem is a long piece, it's a mass. A Requiem is a mass for the repose of the dead. Uh, And so this is, you know, 10 minutes into the mass or whatever. And there's a big trombone solo. And it's like, that never happened before. (laughs) It's like this. Really? Yeah, this giant, long trombone solo with the baritone 
singer eventually, and it's it's just a really lovely uh, discussion between the two musicians, mm-hmm. you know? And so um, just very um, unexpected and just, wow, Mozart just wrote that trombone solo. And he did use trombone in, in his operas, uh, particularly Don Giovanni, uh, The Magic Flute. Mm-hmm. You know, there's trombone in Mozart. Yeah. But this was just such a... In your Show, face. Showcasing moment. Yeah, what's... yeah, super cool. So let's listen to the opening of the tuba mirum from Mozart's Requiem. couple different sources that this is like usually if you're gonna well not usually but it can be used uh this piece for an audition because it's technically difficult yeah it's not even that it's technically difficult it's not technically difficult it's pretty straightforward but it's such an important part of trombone orchestral repertoire that you'd have to demonstrate that you have some kind of sensitivity to the music yeah. and, you know, ability to play it very precisely and cleanly and beautifully in tune. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because it really is a statement when that tuba starts, or yeah. tr- tr- uh, trombone starts. It's just like, wow, here's yeah. the trombone. Why is it called tuba mirum? Because that's literally a part of the mass. That's a legit part of the mass. Okay, okay. So Verdi did it, Berlioz. Britain put it in his War Requiem. Okay. Dvorak's Requiem, Penderecki. Ooh, I bet that one's rough. <laughs> Yeah, it's part of the DACRA. I thank you for choosing that because I know right now if I were to, you know, talk to some friends who loosely know about classical, yeah, you know, they could probably tell me their favorite, I don't know, violin sonata or clarinet concerto or whatever. But to say, guys, tell me about a song that you really like or a movement or a symphony mm-hmm. that features the trombone. <laughs> They're probably going to look at me like a deer yeah. in headlights. So I think yeah. it's for those of you who... Like the trombone, play the trombone, whatever. It's it's cool trombone's to know awesome. It's out there. Trombone's weird, and but trombone's awesome. Love it. Yeah. Um, so Piedmont. Piedmont. So I wanted to talk about um, just uh, you know thinking of an instrument that the sound has you know I don't want to say changed classical music in a way that but this I think when people first started to taste wines made in stainless steel. They were like, wow, not only is that interesting, but wow, is that easier (laughs) just on so many different (laughs) levels. And we'll get there for a moment. So, um, you know, for those of you who who drink wine, you probably know that wine can be fermented and aged in oak barrels, in maybe concrete, clay. Stainless steel is by far the most popular 
um, fermenting, whether it's beer, whether it's wine, whether you're aging a spirit um, receptacle the world over. Um, and the reason why is mainly because it's so easy to clean. It's mm. like that simple. The percentage of faulty wines uh, due to like hygiene is going to go way down mm. um, be- because of stainless steel. But a little brief history because I thought this was really, um, really interesting. A lot of people even in wine don't know. It really became in use in about the 1950s and 60s for wine and for beer, uh, for for fermented things. Um, but stainless steel has its beginnings in the 1820s, like its its actual true beginnings. Um, there was a, a gentleman by the name of Pierre Berthier, a Frenchman, who he was experimenting with cutlery. And he, okay. was, he was trying to take um, like an alloy steel and combine it with, um, with chromium to make something that was durable, something that was like hygienic, um, and he, there were problems just due to like knowledge of chemistry, et cetera. But stainless, uh, stainless steel needs to have a very low chromium content, like 10 to 30%. And there are different types of stainless steel okay. um, out there. So some are food grade, some oh, sure. you don't use for food. Sure. Um, but it really got its bearings in like the late 1800s. There was a German chemist who he, his name was Hans Goldschmidt, and he kind of, his experimenting with it sealed, pretty much sealed the deal in terms of being able to harness, adding the right amount of chromium and and creating what is like a layer, it's called um, chromium oxide that acted as that like protectant layer that now we all take for granted is like the easiest thing to clean. I've cleaned stainless steel and I've tried to like clean an oak barrel and I've tried <laughs> to qu- clean clay vessels. And let me tell you, <laughs> scrubbing out a clay vessel with cherry bark sucks. <laughs> it's really fun for the first 10 minutes. Yeah, Cleaning out a barrel with a barrel washer and getting all wet and having to sulfur it sucks. Wow. Spraying with a hot water gun Inside of stainless steel is like the easiest thing on the planet, <laughs> and so I can see why uh, I can see why winemakers employ it. Mm-hmm. Um, what it does for wine is extraordinary, but it's in the eye of the beholder sometimes right. um, because, as you can tell with this, uh, give it a little smell and tell me what you think. What's like the first word that comes to your mind? Clean. Perfect. Okay. And the first word that comes to my mind is fruity. And with stainless steel, if you're if you're making a wine that's like if you're not going into like a extremely natural realm and no sulfur and a lot of stuff, this has a little filtration. Um, may or may not be natural yeast, but wines that are in stainless steel are usually meant to be, you know, they're going to preserve their fruit characteristics because there's think of when you have cabin fever. You know, you're like stuck in a place. There's yeah. nowhere for that fruit or slash wine to respire. So when it's in stainless steel, it's in sta- it's you know, yeah. There's nowhere really for it to develop other than notes of fermentation. Like fruity esters aren't going anywhere because <laughs> they've transferred, or because they've they've had a you know a combination of of air, etc. Yeah. So um, when I smell this. There's a little bit of lees, that little like dead yeast smell, but it's basically like 
like white raspberries and white cherries, and mm. it's just kind of like all these really bright, clean, yeah. fruity notes. What about on the palate? I find it less fruity than it smells. It is a little less fruity. It's really bright. Oh, acidy. Really acidic for mm-hmm, sure. Mm-hmm. And it preserves acid too if you're not doing a lot to it. Like Stainless steel does. Yeah. If you're if you're not like moving the wine around a lot and giving it a lot of it, it also will retain it can retain its its acid levels could be higher than if it were very slowly degrading in an oak barrel because okay. of air, you know? Okay. Um so just just a couple tidbits about stainless steel that are interesting. I'll go into more later, but I figured Okay. Talk about a little music or something. So you can't ever, like, when you taste a wine, you're, you don't taste stainless steel. You either taste oak or don't, or you taste clay or you don't, or you take, can you taste concrete? You can taste concrete, yeah. So you can taste those things or not, and then if you don't taste any of those things, you're like, well, stainless steel then. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah, I mean, if you're in a blind tasting and you're trying to figure out what a wine is or where it's from, mm-hmm. you usually, even if it's really old, old, old wood, people say, "Oh, yeah, if it's really, if it's old enough, it won't impart flavor." But if you're an astute taster, it imparts something. It, it the edges might be a little rounder. It, it might have just the tannins might be a little bit different. Um, and the same with concrete's freshness. Clay adds something else. Stainless steel, if you lick stainless steel, it doesn't taste like anything. Right. It's inert. And so yeah. that's a great a great point. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, uh, should we move on to Beethoven? This one will be quick. Please do. Yeah. So, you know, trombone, again, just wasn't in symphonic music throughout a lot of the classical era. And by the time Beethoven uses a trombone in a symphony, he's into his middle period, which is the early 1800s. So uh, that's one of the things I think I find most fascinating about trombone is that it was there. It was there. Like, there was trombone in the world. Yep. And it just wasn't utilized in symphonic music. And that's where the whole speculation comes from. Well, it was considered a sacred instrument, so it stayed in the church. I mean, that's what its role was, you know. So um, Beethoven put it in the very final movement of his fifth symphony. And he wasn't, Beethoven was not the first person to put trombone in a symphony, just so we're clear about that. Uh, But it's the one we still play, all right? Like, yeah. And... You know, the poor trombone players have to sit up on stage. Well, so does the piccolo player, because it's mm-hmm. the fir- this is the first time Beethoven used piccolo in a, oh. in a symphony as well, also in the last movement. Those poor people sit up on stage the whole time. Well, to be fair, the piccolo player is probably the flute player. But the trombone players, they're sitting up there through the first movement, second movement, third movement. Huh. You know, it's like I think Beethoven used them. Beethoven was always on this quest for bigger and louder um, which you can really tell in his solo piano works. He really was fighting against the limitations of the piano at the time, and he kind of did that with orchestra too, and I think with his Fifth Symphony, it's such a triumphant final movement. He just wanted all the kids in the band, mm-hmm. you know? And so he's like, well, I don't see why I can't put a couple of trombones in here. And uh, so he did. So we'll listen to a little bit of the end yeah. of uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Yeah, let's yeah. listen to it. Let's listen to some of this Beethoven. 
So I've pulled up the part here because since you can find orchestral excerpts that musicians need to practice for auditions. And so you can see here how really uninteresting the part is. Yeah, I'm surprised. Uh, you know, if you can read music, you can get a sense for, okay, that's boring to sit for 20 minutes and then play that, you know, so. But so it was more, it was less difficulty and more about creating, like you said, that color, that yep. depth of. Exactly. It's all about color. All about color. The, the trombone is in no way, shape, or form highlighted in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Like, you, you know, it's not like though. a solo yeah. or a section highlight. They're just there for color, yeah. you know. But such a significant appearance for them because then it just became normal after that. Even though, again, I want to make sure that you know that I know that Beethoven was not the first one to put a trombone in a symphony. Yeah. But this is a significant showing, especially in the Fifth Symphony, such a famous, famous work. Um, and then again, it just became like normal after that. Uh, and people just started using trombones. That's an interesting tie-in because it's the same with wine. Stainless steel was used by a few, um, whether it was like mass market, um, huge wineries in Australia that showed people, wow, if you make a boat ton of wine yeah. in this cleanly way, you can make billions, okay? <laughs> or you've got like, you know, very important chateau in um, Bordeaux that that wasn't right in the 50s and 60s, but it was very close thereafter okay. that said, okay, you know what? We're not going to load up our winery with stainless steel, but we'll try a tank or two and see. And now there are a lot of wineries all over the world. The majority of them, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to throw a percentage out there, but a very high percentage of wineries utilize stainless steel, at least for fermentation, mm -hmm. if not aging. And if we, if you go to, to your, you know, your everyday wine shop or liquor store, 90% of those wines, I w could argue, you know, and we're talking it's anything from somewhere. the yellowtail up to the expensive stuff, 90% yeah. of that touches stainless steel just because of how economical it is. Barrels are expensive, you right. know, and they break, or some people say... And you can only use them so many times, right? Even if you want to use them again. Well, that's... Um, Yes and no. There are a lot of producers that have a stigma, like why, you know, or, or you know, their rules where they, you know, they only want to use them for three years or ten years. Barrels can last centuries. There are people still using barrels from the 1500s in their winery. So, you know, that's. But a lot of people will say, "Well, I want oak to impart flavor or to have air, good air transfer, and that happens when it's more porous, when it's fresher." But you have to, if, even if you're replacing barrels every 10 years, you're replacing barrels every 10 years. That 1,000 right. euros a pop for a brand new barrel, you know, give or take. Whereas stainless steel, and then think of how awkward it is to move around a barrel. They're heavy. Stainless steel is relatively light. It's, you know, we've already talked about the cleanly factor, but it's also, um, you know, relatively inexpensive. And it, if you take care of it, it lasts 
forever yeah. and still performs the same function it did, yeah. you know, when you first bought it. So so stainless steel can be used in two different parts. It can be used to actually ferment the wine and or it can be used, the wine after fermentation would be transferred to it to age. Yep, or you can you can ferment a wine and then you can dump all of your wine into a press if you know if you're making a red wine or rosé press the grapes and then all that liquid that comes out now that is macerated juice and or wine you could clean out that tank again and then put the wine back in there to either rest to age to settle okay. like how, so it can be a good it's like can be a holding tank too and a lot of folks have extra wine around and they're going to use that to like top up their barrels as as barrels evaporate a little bit okay your top-up tank is usually stainless steel. Not okay. always. It could be like some glass demijohns lying around, but okay. um, it's like just a good tank to put stuff in when you okay. want to hold it there for a long time because it's not yeah. nothing's going to happen to it, right? You know, or right. very little is going to happen to it. One thing I want to point out um, about stainless steel is that so it's great for so many reasons, right? I'm talking about a lot of positives to stainless steel. Yeah. But there are some winemakers um, and, you know, sommeliers or wine aficionados that um, actually don't love stainless steel because of how, like, pretty, you know, like they can kind of make, it can make wines depending on how you're making the wine that's one-dimensional. Okay, that can happen with any vessel, sure. Okay. But stainless steel is sort of like because it doesn't give anything, it doesn't take anything. Like it, there's just no. Right. Th- think of you walking down the street in a foreign country and not talking or having any interaction with anyone from that foreign country. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to walk away with a lot of beautiful memories, but you're not going to have like cultural exchanges. Yeah. And uh, many winemakers would would, you know, stand by their notion of like stainless steel is great for all these reasons, but it doesn't allow for other complexities that could occur in concrete because of, the, you know, the oxygen transfer or, or barrels or what have you. Okay. And I, I don't feel either one way or the other. I think great wine can be made in any vessel, but they tend to just be really, like, fun and fruity. Another problem with stainless steel is because there's no transfer of air, there's no, when there's oxygen in winemaking, it's sort of like when you're a helicopter mom, your kid's probably going to grow up with some problems, you know, <laughs> versus versus if the kid is allowed to, like, get in its own trouble once yeah. in a while, they yeah. learn how, what's yeah. going to hurt and what doesn't. Yeah. And if you don't expose your wine to any oxygen and it's in this thing and nothing can get to it, mm-hmm. chances are that, A, you, you can have a problem called reduction. So if you've ever opened a wine and it kind of smells like eggs or like like really strong like sulfur or um, matchsticks, that can be a sign of it's called reduction. And that's an absence or a lack of oxygen transfer happening in a wine. Wine's made in a reductive fashion. And that's, you can come by that in, in any vessel, but it seems to be more prevalent in stainless steel, okay. which can be an issue. Um, there's also... How does that, I'm sorry... How does that then get bottled and shipped off? Like, how do they not taste that and be like, oh, we screwed up our wine? Well, because it's technically not screwed up. Like, what could happen if this were to be reductive? Yeah. Then we would just sit here and give it a little swirl. Yeah. And that would probably go away. Like, oh. reduction can go away with air. Oh. But it's more, it's more, like, 
why don't you just allow it to have some air so you don't have that problem at the beginning? Second thing is wines that, I think, wines that get a little bit of oxygen throughout mm -hmm. the course of their, you know, like adolescence, we'll say, <laughs> they tend to, when they hit air, they don't fall apart within a day. You know, you and I have tasted wines that we've used on the on our podcast a week later and they're delicious. Yeah. Those wines are usually not made in a reductive fashion meaning like in stainless steel, afraid of air. Okay. They're made in a way that's air is allowed. Okay. And that can still happen in stainless. Okay. You can crank open the top of a stainless steel vat, give a little stir. You know, there's <laughs> ways you can introduce oxygen. Sure. But if you're making wine in a stainless steel vat in a in a way that you want to be really protective of it, you may have problems, you know, your wine may not have as much life once you open it. It may degrade quicker. Okay. So Fascinating. Some, plus, some pluses and minuses of stainless steel. To stainless steel. To stainless steel. <laughs> it's a very fun wine. And that's... Very uh, oops. Yeah. I could... Is that a liter? Yep. <laughs> easy. <laughs> but that's... I love that you use that word fun and easy... Mm -hmm. And oops. Yes, such oops wine. Because a lot of times wines made in this style in stainless steel are yeah. that way. Yeah. How many wines are oops that are made in like new oak. French oak yeah. barrels? I can't oops that. So last but not least, she revived a goodie. I did. I, I had some slight reservations and man. Look, I, I have a few crusades in life, right? I think we all do. One of my crusades, obviously, something I feel very passionately about is to help people learn more about classical music and just enjoy it for the fun that it is, right? The other crusade that I have is to help people understand that Maurice Ravel and his piece Bolero, Bolero is one of the coolest pieces ever, and I just... There's no... It's so unnecessary to hate on Bolero because Bolero is awesome, <laughs> And it's awesome for some really awesome reasons, too. It's not – there's just some really – some. It, it's a great piece. And the trombone has a beautiful solo in it. And then at the end, the trombones make that – one of my favorite things about Ravel as a composer is the way he ended pieces. He just knew how to end a piece. Mm -hmm. He could write these endings that just make you want to just celebrate life. You know, they're just so wonderful. And Bolero ends like that, and it's in large part to the trombones because they do get to do that idiosyncratic slide, mm -hmm. and it's uh, it's just a it's a wonderful thing. And they they do it in the solo too, which is very cool. I love that we could hear that. You yeah, know, like when I was listening to it the few times that I did in the last forty eight hours, mm -hmm. I just it it gave me like I giggled. You know, I was just <laughs> yeah. like it's it's serious, yeah, but playful, yeah. Well, let's let's listen. It was done in the. 20s, late 20s, right? Yeah, 1928 was the premiere okay. of Bolero. 1928. So we're just going to go to those parts because it is a long piece. We'll include so, a link to just, watching the score because it's really, really fun. This is do. a really cool video. I'm, I'm going to look more into this. Per I've watched this person's stuff before. Uh, Geru Bach, I can't remember. I don't know if that's how you say their username on YouTube. I've watched their stuff before, and this is my favorite one I've seen so far. The way this person visualizes the score for you is super cool. So what's important to know about Bolero before we get too far going into it here, because we're going to dump into like the last third, and by the time we get there, shit's happening. 
But the way the piece unfolds is it starts with this snare drum rhythm that the snare drum plays the entire 17 minutes of the piece or however long the piece is. Uh, so that rhythm happens through the whole piece, right? There's the There are three elements in bolero and only three. So there's that rhythm that happens in the snare, and then other instruments will pick it up and play with the snare throughout the piece. Uh, in, you know, including trumpets, horns, flutes, they all get going on that rhythm. Uh, then there's the beat, which is just literally on the beat one, two, three, one, two, three. One. That's basically all they do. I'm glad she didn't keep minutes. singing that because then I was going to go. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's element three. <laughs> that's the melody. So these three elements happen and repeat over and over and over again in Bolero with very little change except for the instrumentation. And one of the things I love about the piece is that it really is just kind of a survey of the orchestra and taking this very beautiful, very exotic and rhythmically intense, interesting kind of things happening on the offbeats and carrying over the measure and just really kind of... Uh, seductive melody. Survey of the orchestra. Yeah. Just yes. For 17 minutes, just passing it around and building it very, very slowly mm -hmm. and adding instruments very slowly. So by the time the trombone plays the melody as a solo, there's all kinds of things happening, but all kinds of instruments, all kinds of instruments playing, but still just those three elements, just somebody playing the melody, a bunch of people playing the snare drum rhythm, and a bunch of people playing the downbeat part. Three elements only. Brilliant. Thank you, Ravel. Here we go. And so this is all great, whatever, but it's the, it's the, really the end where the trombones shine. And if so, you ever want, like, you know, when you get mad that a song is in your head, it's just so great to be like, mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. It's, yeah, it's a, no, it's a goodie. It's a good one. It's a good one. I just love that he uses it. You know, I love yes. that. Yes. I mean, how can you, like, if you, I've seen that live a couple of times, and it's it literally is one of my favorite pieces to see live because just you have to watch the orchestra practice all this restraint to save up for the end because it really is one, like, 17-minute long crescendo from literally super soft to super loud. Never does it get softer or louder during the piece, right? You know what I mean? Well, yeah. it gets, but it just slowly gets louder 
the whole time. And and just to observe that live in this audience full of people and then the end, you just everybody just always you just stand up and cheer. Like how can you not stand up and cheer after that? <laughs> you know, so it's great. great. So anyway, that's just a little tiny survey of the awesome things that trombone can do in an orchestra. Yeah, I think that it's the most out of the four. Um like for I don't know, I think it's the most I don't maybe interesting is the wrong word. I like how it's just like, here we are. Here this we is are. what we can do. This yep. is what we can add. Instead yes. of being, I like the color situation. Yeah. But that's also for a lot of folks, including myself, if I'm not, if if that whole symphony hasn't done an actual orchestra, I should say, yeah. hasn't done, okay, Jill, the trombones aren't going to play now. Yeah. And then they go, and now we'll do that same rendition and they will play. Yeah. If I couldn't listen to them side by side, I I wouldn't be able to probably pick out the trombones. Yeah. Thankfully, they're there. They yes. add to the complexity. Yeah. But yeah. I just really like that they're in it and they're in it. he's using them for what they have. Yep. And, of course, this is more than a century later than Beethoven. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 1929, you know, Beethoven's been dead for 102 years, for one thing. So it's like... It's really interesting to me when I think about all the innovations that Beethoven did and all the innovations he didn't do. You know, I'm like, why didn't he use the trombone in a more chromatic way? Because it was able to do that then. Like, why didn't he do that? Well, he just didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was for others to do down the road. And then by the time uh, Maurice Ravel gets his hands on it, it's a, it's a fully utilized chromatic instrument in the world. And like, of course we're going to use it. And there were, I mean, it was, you know, lots and lots and lots and lots of examples in the late 1800s and and till now with trombones being a part of the orchestral family, you know? It sounds like stainless steel and the trombone have actually had a very, like a similar, I don't know, upbringing because, you know, people at first were, I don't want to say skeptical because I wasn't a winemaker in the 1950s, right, or 60s, but the people that, you know, I've, I've spoken with, who have a history in wine that do date back that far or their parents. You know, at first stainless steel was like this new shiny thing that was expensive and it was only for, it wasn't for the farmer winemaker, you know, it wasn't for, it wasn't the traditional way you did things in Burgundy, you know, you always did it this way. And so people, even though it was really well utilized from about the time of the Great Depression for, you know, a lot of a lot of different things coming from Europe and and then making its way to the United States, stainless steel. Um, for wine, it had like sort of this almost like bolero, like the slow kind of crescendo in terms of popularity. And all of a sudden in the 80s and 90s when it was like all anybody wanted was clean wine that was fruity, <laughs> it was like... <laughs> and it sounds like at by this time in the 1800s, it's like people were using the trombone. Yeah, they were using it for its its chromatic abilities, and same thing now with wine. Yeah. Use it for its mm-hmm. ability to be clean and fruity and fun and oops. Love it. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Rees. 
You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours. We're on Instagram at scores and pours, all one word. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. And I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Incorporated. Music